Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Eric Law. He's the co-founder and CEO of The Urban Machine. So Eric, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited because you've been around innovation for a while. I think one of your early ventures, web-based project and program management, is that correct? That is early on, back in the early 2000s. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that was related to the construction industry as well, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. There was a collaborative construction management, program management application, earlier cloud vendors. And you scaled it and you sold it. I mean, was it straightforward? Most startups aren't straightforward. It seems easy, right? You know, build some software, get some customers, grow a company, a little hiccup in the middle, a little housing crisis there in 08 that jumped in the middle. <laughs> you know, feel a little speed bumps, but no, it's, you know, it's, I call them roller coaster rides. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of fun when you can solve a problem and, you know, build a solution and, and people come in and they tell you how much they love your product. That's probably the best part about it. Right. Yeah. People say, hey, this is a great idea. We love what you're doing. And that's why I'm doing it again. <laughs> yeah. And when you did it the the first time, I mean, if you had to look back, what were your key learnings? Yeah. So it's definitely, you know, diversify your customer base. You know, it's really you got to focus on the sales and the revenue side and, and be flexible because you never know what's going to happen. Economics changes, industries change, focus changes, and try not to, probably the biggest lesson learned is try not to, you want to introduce change without making people realize they're changing. Ah, I love that concept. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) change management is, is, is a fascinating topic for me. How do you do that, what you were just describing? Yeah, it's it's when you touch workflows, the key point is kind of, you know, you always choose how big of a piece you want to cut off when you're changing a workflow, right? And are there touch points on the, the left and right side of it that you can integrate with where you intersect existing workflows to a point where you're not changing those on the left and right, and you're just adjusting between point A and point B. You know, kind of one of my inspirations is looking at what Apple does. They didn't just introduce a phone. They wiped out the whole camera ecosystem, right? With their device, just blew them away out of the water, right? All the SLR guys are all toast and the film industry's toast all because of Apple and their phones. But they didn't start like that from day one. It was just a little handy little feature. No threat here, just a little low pixel, low resolution camera. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even before that, they started with a little music player. Right. Ah. The first iPods were just purely music. Hey, there's no way to store it, get rid of the CDs. And then over time, they've just blown everybody away. And you got to do a similar thing with software, right? How do you bring a tool to market that's so easy to use and people can adopt? They really don't know they're using it. And then with hardware now in this iteration. I mean, do you think when Steve Jobs and you know was introducing that, they were thinking that far ahead? I'm sure he had a grand vision. When you start these things, you have to have a big vision, a big long-term, you know, five, 10-year idea, very high level, right? I'm sure he had no idea where it would go, but he's going to try it. And that's typically what most entrepreneurs do, right? They have a big vision and it's like, how do we go do something new or different? You know, sometimes it's for better, sometimes it's for worse, but hopefully most of the time it's for the better and away we go. So for you, when you had your first venture, what was the wedge? How did it grow from there? 
Yeah, so we took on we took on a lot. So we tried connecting the whole supply chain. Our concept was let's have a workflow to move data across the entire supply chain. So we were going to change everybody and move them all digitally, uh, which is really hard to do. Um, and that's hence why I learned <laughs> you have to reduce your resistance and make it easy. Even if you give it away to them for free, right? If there's no cost to the end user and stuff, it's still a challenge. And so that's why, you know, with this current venture, with this recycling robot, you know, we're taking waste off of people's hands. We're taking something that people will want to get rid of. Currently, they're paying to get rid of it. And so when we tell them, hey, you know, we'll take it for no cost or less cost than what you're paying today, they're like, absolutely. Oh, and by the way, it's a greener solution for it. They jump on board and then we're selling it into another industry. So we're actually not really disrupting an existing player. It's kind of the ultimate innovation. Right. We're taking a waste stream, we're turning it into a high value product, and we're selling it into a company that's like, hey, we bought this before. It's a little older, a little high quality, but we can purchase it like we do our existing products. Yeah. Where's the friction point in this? Because there's usually some, you know, change management friction point. What was it? Is the front end cost of setting this up? Like where what needs to change? Yeah, so that's the cool part is it's really on the adoption side. We want to get people to specify reclaim lumber. So people are very used to virgin lumber, right? You order it from the mill, it comes in standard sizes, you know, it's nice and soft, you can work with it. And so what we're doing is we're doing a lot of evangelizing with the architects to say, hey, specify reclaim first, right? Let's go with the more sustainable material first. And the nice part is, you know, architects, right? They're not the ultimate buyer. Right. They specify and they recommend, but they're not buying. And so architects love it because it's a more sustainable material. It's a beautiful material. It's higher quality than what you get today. And so we're trying to avoid any real friction points in it, or at least minimizing. When it goes from the the architects and possibly a general contractor and change uh, change, you know, alternatives and stuff like that, what stops that from occurring? Yeah. So historically it was the cost. So historically, when architects specified reclaimed lumber, it was much more expensive than virgin because it was hand cleaned, hand processed, a lot of labor involved with it. And so our goal with automation is to remove that friction and bring that cost down. You know, our end goal is to get our machines moving fast enough where we can compete with virgin lumber at the mill. And so if we eliminate that friction point and we're processing reclaimed lumber at the same price as virgin, then there's very little reason for pushback. And how much more scales require for that sort of tipping point to occur? Yeah, so for us, we're at a stage where it's not so much scale, it's more technology innovation. And so our machine, our first one was out in the field, going through field trials. We're going to do another iteration here on it over the next quarter and get another version of it out that's going to be faster. And so for us, we're really working on the unit economics of the machine and the production rates to get faster. There's more than enough raw material. Raw material is not a problem. There is lots of it out there. And so we're working on the throughput of the machine and then the market adoption side, you know, so we're starting to sell material in small loads as we have it available and get people working with the material going like, wow, this is great. This is beautiful. Okay. Let's go start to use on large scale projects. Mm, very nice. And then, you know, when you sold your first company, you got acquired, you worked for the other company for a while. What was your experience there working within a large organization in an innovation capacity? Yeah, so I ran their construction product portfolio, right? And so, you know, it, when you innovate in a startup, it's totally different than trying to do it in a large corporation. Large corporation, you spend you know 95% of your time just trying to convince upper management that they should do something differently versus out working with customers and sales and all that. So it's just mind-bogglingly slow. 
It's just, it's, it's why large corporations don't innovate or very few of them do it. That's why they always acquire small startups. And so I learned that pretty quickly that there's a reason why large corporations acquire startups. They just, they cannot move quick to save their lives. And that's fine. You know, the aircraft carrier has a task and a job and <laughs> it does its thing and picks up small components to add to it. And then when I left there and I was working for the large contractor running an innovation program there, I saw the same challenge. You know, yeah. it's large organizations. And even though you try and set up small projects and prove it and test it, it's just very hard for leadership teams and large organizations to recognize, hey, we got to do something different as we move forward. Yeah. You know, they always look backwards and say, hey, we've been very successful doing X, Y, and Z. Let's just keep doing it or do more of it. And you're like, well, here's some examples that haven't been successful. Oh, they're outliers, right? <laughs> it's like, uh. <laughs> yeah. So, but some of those failures don't look good on quarterly reports, right? You kind of like you just need the ability to just go and try a bunch of stuff. Yep. And that's really hard. It's it's a different mentality. You know, those that want to try new stuff and do different things and take that risk that aren't a fail, afraid to build something that completely fails and say, oh, wow, I learned lots of cool things. Let's go do it again. That's a real unique personality. Yeah. And is there any continuity with your, your first team that grew out or your second team? Like when you're trying to assemble this team to go and do something, what are you thinking about? Yeah. So this team is is totally different. So the first one was a SaaS company, which is awesome, right? You have no capital costs. You just you know run some server space, hire some developers, and away you go. The hardware side is we have the iterative software stack, but then we have this capital cost of hardware. And, you know, iterating on hardware, it's just, it's really tough on the bottom line when you go spend, you know, $100,000 on a machine. And then everybody's like, well, that's great. We learned a ton, put it on the shelf and we're going to do it again. And there goes another hundred grand into the next iteration, right? Oh. It just, the cap cost and the finances are just totally different from SaaS, oh. right? And it's, I learned it scares a lot of investors. A lot of investors are just purely scared of that, right? But at the end of the day, where all the problems are today require hardware. If you're anywhere in the construction space, you have to deliver a physical product. You know, the AI is not going to build a building on its own without some type of physical machine taking that data set and applying it to physical materials. And so that's what we're doing. And so we've got some great investors that recognize that behind us. We've put together a great team of engineers, you know, doing hardware and software that are iterating away on both sides of it to make it go faster, you know, in not quite two years, we've built four versions of this machine and our fifth one is under design right now. <laughs> Did each one cost about six figures or more? Yeah. Wow. And that takes courage, right? Because I know like, you know, when we did a bunch of innovation work, it's like do as much, they call it upfront marketing, which is like research without actually doing it. But, you know, the, the things that have moving parts, you have to build it at some point to actually figure it out. So there's those shots, right? Like, what do you do with each version to try to minimize the risk? Is there things you can do? Yeah. So obviously, you know, after we build a version, we run the heck out of it, right? I mean, we make the engineers sit out there with the machine and run wood load after wood load after wood load to learn from it. You know, what's working, what's not, what's failing right away because it's a bad design or what's failing longer term because it doesn't have the robustness it needs. You know, how do we make it faster? You know, where are those performance sticking points? And then once we learn from that and we're like, wow, okay, we found some sticking points on the performance side, right? Here's how we can make it go faster. Okay, new iteration time. 
right? That's really the driver of it is the performance side. You know, reliability, okay, you can spec different parts and stuff like that, but we're really focused on that performance side. You know, okay, what did we learn to make it go twice as fast next time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the market adoption side and stuff like that, I mean, how much of the pre-work is happening at that any phase because you have to convince people to change behavior that this product is high quality, right? That yes. the cost will go down through the virgins. How early are you starting with that process? Yeah. So the cool part is we're our own customer for the hardware. You know, I don't want to try and sell an alpha product that's robotics to a customer because that's going to slow down our iteration process because uh, then I have to have a support team and I have to fix it all and keep it up and running. And then you know, so we operate on a service model. And I've done this with several other construction robotics companies where we go out there and we say, you know, you used to hire a company to do X, Y, and Z. Here's what we charge. And we come out and we own all that technical risk. And so it gets us revenue flowing through the company. It gets the machine out in the field, getting tests and uses with real customers. And the customer is not taking all the risk, right? There's very little risk for our customers. And so we'll do that here this year, next year, for about the first two years. And then we'll go into a leasing model because I still don't want to put that technical iteration risk on my customers, Yeah. right? Where they bought a machine and they're stuck with old tech for five years. That doesn't yeah. go well. And then at some point, once our technology iteration starts to slow down and it's proven and it's hitting yeah. its economics and it's making all the money, then we'll start to sell those machines. Yeah, because I guess at some point, they're going to be able to run their their own numbers and it'll be more cost effective for them to, to take hold of the asset. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. Yep. They'll train their crews. They'll run the machine. They'll pick one, two or three shifts. What's best for their organization. Yep but I got to make sure I deliver a high-performance, stable machine for them to do that. Yeah. And when you're running the service mall, you're running revenue through the, the company. So it's it's easier for the investors to visualize, right? The reduction in costs and where the break-evens, the inflection points are and stuff like that. You got it. Yep. Mm, very clever. And then the fact all you have to do is, you know what? People are buying for you, trying to figure out what the sensitivities around the cost point are on what you know, currently sustainability and how that's relating to the decision-making process and try to maximize that. And then they'll give you a good indication how much it's going to cost you to roll this out. Yep. Oh, I like it. Never thought about it from the service model. Like, cause you know, when I think of physical things being built, I think of physical things being sold. So mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. If services, you can customize services very easily you can change the prices on you know services to see what adoption rates happen and stuff like they have a lot more flexibility and control for the yep. process and oh. the nice thing about you know connected hardware is it makes it really easy to offer hardware as a service yeah. right so you can do it on throughput numbers you can do it on hourly run times you can have a whole host of different models because you're connected to the machine right? The machine's phoning home and saying, hey, I ran this many thousands of board feed, or I ran for this many hours, or, you know, you've got all that data available. And so you can get those win-win situations with your customer, right? Because different true. customers will have different business models. That's true. The executives will have different things that they're compensated on, and there may be ways to customize it so that it achieves their goals. Yep. You got it. And then we can maximize uptime. We can see the performance of the hardware. You know, we can see what components are performing, which ones aren't lasting to service life. There's, you know, hardware as a service has got a lot of value. So, I mean, what prompted you to start this? I, I think sustainability was the most main part, but what 
how did this all come about? So I was running the innovation program at the large contractor and they started to spin up a sustainability initiative. So my team got involved with that and we started to look at waste streams coming off our jobs. And we were looking at, you know, what happens to the waste material, the concrete, the steel, the glass, the wood, all these materials. And what we learned is, you know, concrete and steel have recycle paths. They're not the best, but they're not going to a landfill, right? Which is better. And wood is going to landfills or incinerators. Ooh, well, that's ugly. Okay. So how much wood is going to landfills? And so the EPA had done some research on it here in the U.S. And they said 37 million tons every year of dimensional lumber. We're just talking the dimensional lumber. We're not talking the lead painted stuff. We're not talking creating material, just dimensional lumber. It's like, oh, that's a massive problem. And, you know, when you're a startup person, you're looking for big problems, right? You're looking for problems that nobody's touched yet. Nobody solved this one. Everybody's just burning it and chipping it for the landfill. And so I reached out to some of the robotics folks I knew. And I said, hey, you know, could we automate this? Because the whole hold back to wood is the metal fasteners. You can't process wood with metal in it. You know, you can't run a planer or a saw through it. And so everybody I talked to said, you got to get it metal free. And so when I reached out to the roboticist that I worked with, who's now one of my co-founders, Andrew, he said, oh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> right. He said, just no problem. Right off the top. He's like, absolutely. <laughs> and he started jumping on it. He started building the first prototype. Right. He started, he got a webcam app, got a little linear rails moving, got a nail shooter to pop nails out. And he started building a prototype. But within the first month, he had a little desktop prototype that was kicking nails out of wood. Wow. And, you know, and for my wife, she's like, oh, damn, somebody said yes to you again on another idea. (laughs) (laughs) And then we brought on um, Alex, who does uh, computer vision and AI. And so the three of us were off and running, went out and raised some funds where they said, hey, guys, okay, here's some money, go prove it. So we proved we could automate the process with the first round of funds, closed another round last fall. And now we're proving that we can take this thing to the field and create a production unit that can actually operate on job sites and at waste facilities. <laughs> Your wife uh, mentioning uh, someone said yes to you. It makes me think that you followed or sort of went down the, the path of looking at many different things. Yes. You know, you've always got ideas. I've had lots of different ideas on the whiteboards. You know, I've built teams to go tackle some other ones. COVID killed one of those ideas. You know, it was designed for a work office environment and everybody left the office. So that one had to get shelled. (laughs) It's, you know, you're always tinkering with ways to do things differently or better. And, you know, it's kind of keeping an eye out for it's like the ones that are suddenly like massive problem. People like, oh, yeah, we're on board with this. And then it just starts to grow legs from there. Yeah, I mean, with the ideas or things that you've pursued in the past, I mean, did they come through just you looking at stuff, you hearing about stuff? Where do you get this sort of base of information? Yeah, usually it's you run across challenges, either directly involved or working with other folks on it. And it's like, man, why is this so difficult? Right? Why is this so expensive, so difficult? Why is it, you know, not working? You know, could it be done better? And there's always ways to do small incremental improvements. Okay, you go find a new tool, you find a new way to solve it. And every once in a while, you're like, man, how can this be done better? And you're looking, it's like, okay, there's no tool for it. Nobody solved the problem. It's a big problem. And it starts to check enough boxes where you're like, ooh, this is an opportunity. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I love this stuff. I love the area that you're focusing in, sustainability. It's very, very important to us and what we're doing as well in innovation. I mean, is there anything I haven't asked you, but you wanted to share? Yeah, so probably our roadmap. 
right? What are we doing next? So we've got the first unit out in the field. We're going to focus here on greater Northern California area for the rest of this year. We're going to build a second system that will go out here in a couple months. And then next year, we're going to do a small production run. Go build a dozen systems, spread those out to different geographies, go prove we can do this outside Northern California. And then hopefully 25 mass production. You know, we believe for us to capture about half the material here in the U.S., it's going to take about five to 6,000 machines. And we've got people inquiring from Europe. We've got people from Australia, New Zealand, all over the world. It's, it's a global problem. Anywhere anybody's built with wood, you have this high strength, high quality material that's not getting reused because of the fasteners. So hopefully over the next you know three to five years, we'll become an international company that's solving this problem around the globe. Wonderful. Well, I like the vision. I'm encouraged by your progress and you know, happy to support you along the way. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. This was a, a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.